Good afternoon and welcome to Community Focus. I'm Kyle Gassett. On the show today, we're airing my interview with author and historian Wayne Flint, who is a distinguished university professor of history at Auburn University, and most recently the author of Keeping the Faith, Ordinary People, Extraordinary Lives. Flint is also the author of 11 other books, including Alabama in the 20th Century and Alabama Baptists. The interview you're about to hear was taped on November 2nd of this year, before a live audience at the Community Cultural and Conference Center in Opelika. We're here to discuss your new, your most recent title, Keeping the Faith, Ordinary People, Extraordinary Lives. And after uh, becoming familiar with your biography and just reading all of your, your accomplishments here, I was very surprised to learn that for the first 10 years of your life, you had a dis- different aspiration. I believe it was garbage collector, was that? That's, that's correct. Uh, <laughs> uh, we lived in a house on Quintard Street, the main street in Anniston, Alabama during the Second World War. And my mother said that I would always uh, get up early so I could beat the garbage man and go through all the garbage of all the soldier families who lived in the same boarding house with my family. On one occasion, uh, there was a woman who had disposed of a stick of lipstick, uh, which still had a lot of lipstick in it. And so I painted myself uh, in in the colors of an Indian, apparently, according to my mother but I had managed to get it on every part of my body as well as all of my clothes, not making my mother a very happy camper. <laughs> and the, the point I made in the book was that I was not a, a, a very good student. And for 10 years or so, my mother was seriously concerned that I, I aspired to be a garbage man. That was pretty much consistent with my academic performance. Well, you are a collector of sorts being a historian, as we mentioned, and so collecting stories and history throughout your career has been something that you've been devoted to. And I wanted to read a passage that you wrote about writing biographies, because I think this, this is an interesting way to, to address your most recent titles, we said. You write, biographies must respect the sequence of life. They cannot rearrange events to make the story more dramatic. Life contains passages, phases of maturation, and change. Authors cannot make a person know more at one stage of life than it was possible to comprehend. Judging people who lived long ago by our own moral standards or enlightenment, for instance. So I'm interested in how that particular approach, you as a historian and you as a biographer of your own life, how did, how did that affect you when you sat down to write Keeping the Faith? It, it's different uh, because Memoir is oftentimes now described by people in literature as creative nonfiction. And as an historian, I have real problems with that definition of memoir. And so the first real struggle over this book was what to call it. Uh, the, the most appropriate title for what I did is actually autobiography, which is an old fashioned term that suggested that what you're reading actually occurred as opposed to memoir, which oftentimes now uh, runs across boundaries from fiction to nonfiction. And there have been a number of scandalous memoirs in the last few years in which virtually the entire story was made up. And so one reason for my emphasis upon the sequential nature of a chronology, the narrative line, is because this really is autobiography. And the reason it has the title memoir is because memoir sells and autobiography doesn't. So <laughs> They the know where to put it in the bookstore. Correct. The, the, the publisher said, go into any bookstore and look at the biography section, which is much larger 
than the history section, which is unparalleled. And actually, as a genre of literature next to fiction, memoir is the fastest selling uh, genre of literature in America now. You know, the, the book is built kind of on three pillars, it seems. It's um, religion, politics, academic institution, and, and I guess the history of the state of Alabama is in there as well. So when you were at Sanford University, that was a time of great change in the country. And you, I believe you started teaching there in 1965, is that correct? correct? I was uh, undergraduate at Howard College, as it was called then, between 1958 and 1961. I was, I was absent four years in graduate school, and I returned in 1965. I began to teach uh, in August of 1965 and taught there until the summer of 1977 when I came to Auburn. So, Kind of getting at, at a place in which this juncture of politics and religion are happening, I wonder if you, wouldn't, if you wouldn't mind reading a section. Well, just reading about a time you were asked to write for the Birmingham News while you were at Sanford. Yes, uh, this was, uh, I'd already become involved in what has characterized much of my academic career, which is what Auburn calls outreach. I was asked by uh, an editor at the Birmingham News to write uh, an essay on religion for the July 4th uh, uh, celebration and special issue of the Birmingham News, and this is what I write in the memoir. So, when the Birmingham News invited me to write a special July 4, 1973 feature on religion and the American Revolution, I gladly accepted. Religion pervaded early American history, I wrote, and was a partial cause and justification for armed rebellion. But the revolution also occurred at a time of the lowest church membership in American history. Serious differences among the founding fathers and strong impetus for disestablishing state-sponsored churches that reigned supreme in nearly all the colonies. The greatest legacy of the American Revolution, save for America's actual political independence, was separation of church and state to which religious dissenters such as Jews, Baptists, Quakers, Deists, and others made major contributions. As for widespread historical assumptions that the Southern Church was essentially racist, fundamentalist, and conservative, I waged a career-long assault on three fronts. One was to educate my fellow historians that at least between 1890 and 1945, there was another alternative tradition, a strong social gospel impulse based upon biblical principles of justice toward all people, especially the poor. Beginning with my first article published in the Journal of Southern History, I staked out ground that would result in dozens of published articles and books, chapters, about Methodist, Baptist, and Presbyterian advocates of social Christianity and progressive politics. Over the years, other historians joined the chorus. I also began research that turned into a 30-year project on Alabama Baptist, which would balance negative and positive views of this most stereotyped of all American denominations. And finally, I reminded my colleagues that the Southern Church included African-American congregations. And no discussion of American religion in the South could ignore black religion. Thank you for reading that section. It's, it's 
so powerful in terms of, of charting that map. How do you feel that your time at Sanford University, that politics and religion, maybe even on campus there, changed? I would say that probably the most important thing I learned is that religion does not come in any kind of prepackaged deal, that we all process it through our culture, our family, our experience. And as a consequence of that, to start off with a stereotype about any group of people, whether it's Muslims, Jews, Baptists, Pentecostals, you're in bad trouble. You're already in dangerous trouble when you say, oh, well, I understand Pentecostals. You don't understand Pentecostals unless you've studied them and talked with them, unless you've allowed them to tell you their story. You do not understand Muslims unless you've studied them and talked to them and let them tell you their story. And for darn sure, you don't understand Baptist. Uh, so, uh, you know, if you start off with a principle that we do in the free church tradition of the priesthood of the believer, you don't have a pope in the free church tradition. There's nobody to tell you. There's no bishop to say this is the way the theology runs. If you start off with the assumption that every church is autonomous and independent, then what you're going to wind up with if you start with those two assumptions is not homogeneity. You're going to wind up with... Uh, in, in Lee County, for instance, you're going to wind up with uh, Lakeview Baptist Church and First Baptist Church in Auburn. And those are very different churches. In fact, the gap between those two churches is theologically, socially, and politically probably greater than the typical Pentecostal and Episcopal church. Uh, most uh, Baptist churches do not allow women in positions of major staff. Uh, Auburn First Baptist, more than half of its staff are professional women ministers. Uh, we have 30 or so deacons who are females, including my wife. So the assumptions you make about what Baptists are like certainly don't fit First Baptist. Well, they don't fit a lot of Baptist churches. Uh, some much more fundamentalist, some much more liberal than we are. We well, have a question from the audience that we want to read. What is the highest goal you've set for yourself and how did you accomplish that goal? Uh, the highest goal I ever set for myself was to be a person uh, where what I did and what I believe connected. Uh, that's, psychologists call that an integrated personality where you're, no one is completely integrated. Nobody is completely consistent with what they believe and how they act. But the closer you get, the less internal anxiety and angst you have about your life. And the more people from the outside say, well, you know, whatever you may say about agreeing or disagreeing with this man, at least he's true to his beliefs. So the degree to which my beliefs correspond to my ethics is what I value most. Well, this may be a question for your editor, but how many experiences did you eliminate or pare down to make your memoir, keep it from being 800 pages? Well, uh, that's a really interesting question because the first three chapters of my memoir were about my family. It was family history. <clears throat> and the uh, editor, the director of the University of Alabama Press read that preliminary ju judgment and sent what I considered to be at the time uh, a, a rather uncivil a response to my manuscript. He said, your first hundred pages confirm my general belief that the only people interested in your family consist of you and your family. <laughs> No reader wants to read about your family. Well, I, th I really thought those pages were scintillatingly interesting myself <laughs> uh, and con contained some wonderful stories that, that made people chortle when I read them. I, I particularly love the story of your paternal grandfather when he stole the kiss first from your, 
from your grandmother and how he got slapped for that. That's correct. That's correct. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, I thought the fact that uh, Mike Flint, who was 61 years old and the oldest player ever to play NCAA football out in Texas and spelled his name F-L-Y-N-T, I thought that was a great story. And uh, given the fact that I was a failure at football, I thought it was nice to find one Flint who was really successful, <laughs> even at the age of Somebody 61. to point to. Yeah, yeah he, he actually made it. But uh, I understand what he was saying. And so all of that part of the book, which is about 100 pages, is now in the hands of my sons because I want them to understand our family. I gave it to all my cousins. I gave it to my aunts and uncles. And we have a very large family because my grandmother was one of 18 children. So my father was one of eight children. So as you understand, I have lots of cousins. And I have shared the 100 pages because I want them to know where they came from and who they are. But on the other hand, I have... I have, uh, I have saved you and other readers from the pain of knowing my family. <laughs> other, every, everything else that I sent almost completely is in the book, but that first 100 pages of family history is not. Dr. Wayne Flint, thank you so much. It's a fascinating read, and I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today. Dr. Wayne Flint is a distinguished university professor of history at Auburn University and most recently the author of Keeping the Faith, Ordinary People, Extraordinary Lives, published this year by the University of Alabama Press. We've got the full unedited version of this interview at our website, www.eastalabamaarts.org. This has been Community Focus. I'm Kyle Gassadin for Carolyn Hutchison. Our program is a public service of Troy University, and we now return you to Troy for the remainder of your news hour.